Uh, church, back in 1979, uh, I, I experienced what I would call a meg change, and we're going to be talking about some meg changes from our text this morning. And in 79, I was living in Hurricane, Mississippi, northeastern part of the state, and we lived on a 20-acre farm, and on that 20-acre farm, the next closest house to us was about 10 acres away. And so literally, I spent most of my time with me, the hogs, and the dogs. That was just kind of the way it was when I was growing up. But in 79, going into what would have been my freshman year in high school, my family located to the most growing part of Memphis, the growing suburb of Memphis at that point called Hickory Hill in Memphis. My dad was a fireman, and they had changed residency requirements. And so literally, I had to leave a community, a school, a family where I had been since the third grade and completely relocate as a freshman coming into a new environment. So I went from having a house about 10 acres away to having one. No kidding. This is the house we moved into. Uh, This is on Sunny Slope Drive in Memphis, Tennessee. As you can see, the houses were about 10 yards apart. And every day there were a thousand kids my age hanging out in driveways. And it was a brand new culture that I had never been around. And so, so middle of the summer, so keep this in mind. You think about this as eighth grader, you finish Middle of the summer before your ninth grade year, your family relocates, and so I've got all these new kids, this new culture in my subdivision. I then changed schools to a school that was four times larger than the school that I came out of, a school where I had established myself as a student over a number of years. I was a president of different clubs, and I had established myself with teachers. They knew my academic ability. I had established myself as an athlete. I was a starter in various sports. To go into a school where you couldn't play various sports, if you didn't specialize in one or the other, you weren't going to get any game time. And so this was an amazing challenge for me. And keep in mind, I was doing this at a point where you've got hormonal stuff going on in your body that you can't explain or control. And I had a voice hovering somewhere between high soprano and the lowest bass. At any different point, it could change on that scale with every word that I spoke. And and so I'll just be honest with you, it was a meg change moment for me. It it was a difficult transition initially. Now, once it all got rolling, it's amazing how the Lord just allowed me to slide back in. But I can tell you, there was this moment where you're really trying to accept and establish who you are and develop who you are. And church, I share that with you because all of us experience these meg moments of change and And these meg change times, and one of those we're going to look at today in our text, for Saul, who is later going to become the Apostle Paul, Saul has gone through this miraculous experience where he sees Jesus face to face. You do understand, very few people in Scripture had this happen in his glorified state. Very few people experienced Jesus in the glorified state. They all saw him as the human part, but very few of them experienced him like they did on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so he has this moment with Jesus on the road so powerful that it blinds him. And now God's called Ananias out of his comfort zone, out of his Christian lazy boy. Says, I want you to go to this dude. He's like, no, you don't know who that dude is, Lord. That dude's been killing Christians. You want me to go to him and put my hands on him? You're going to heal this guy. You should actually kill this guy. But that's not what he did. He obeyed, and so he's placed his hands on Saul, who will later become Paul, and these scales fall off his eyes. And we talked about last week, it's not fish scales, it's like flaky skin. That's the word that's used in Greek. And so these scales come off his eyes, and now he can see, and now he really sees, not just physically, but spiritually. And so he commits himself to Jesus. And the Bible said he took in some food, and he got baptized after being filled with the Holy Spirit. And now, now he's going to lay out for us, though, the difficulty of fitting in. Because see, here's what's going to happen. Saul is leaving this Jewish culture which hates Christianity and trying to, trying to merge into this culture where he has murdered people. Keep in mind, don't forget, he's murdered people. He's had people killed. Christians dragged out of their homes and killed. He's had them in prison. He's had their property taken and given to the high priest. And, and so he's going to find himself in a moment not being accepted by the group he's leading and leaving and not being accepted by the group he's trying to come into. And so 
what we learn is this thought, because we can pull from our text this idea that as you and I try to become more and more like Jesus, we're going to talk about this shaping process we're going through. He's trying to fit us into a mold, in case you don't know. And here's the problem. We as humans don't like to be formed into a mold. We like to express ourselves in our culture. But the more you become like Jesus, the harder it's going to be for you to fit into the culture that's around you. And this is what Saul figured out. Man, I can't hang with this group anymore. This group, they don't know whether to trust me or not. So the more I become like Jesus, the harder this thing gets. And so here's what I'm going to tell you. If you're a Christian of any length of time, if you're finding it harder to merge with culture now, that's only natural. If you're blending in with culture and everything that's taking place in culture doesn't offend you and you think it's all politically good, we've got some problems. Because that is not the image that we're being restored unto. And so this morning, we want to talk about what is it we do then? If this is the issue, if this is the thought process that comes out of our text, that the more like Jesus we become, the harder this molding process gets, this transition becomes. What do we do about that? And how do we help others that are going through the same transition? There are some strategies that we pull from our text. So this morning, I want you to pray with me. We're going to ask the Lord to fill us with his wisdom, and we're going to study towards the end here of chapter 9. Father, we, we love you and we praise you already for what you've allowed us to give to you. Father, sometimes I, I think we forget that we, we don't come here to get anything. It is not Shad's job to get us fired up. It is not his job to get us to feel something emotionally. It is Shad's job to lead us to give something to you. And I pray that what we have given to you already, you have found pleasing in your sight. For Father, this is our offering of worship. But Lord, we're not done. Father, I think the greatest form of worship is what we're going to see Paul doing here, which is the teaching of the Word. And Father, we're going to talk about how he links the very person of Jesus to Old Testament content. That that's what true preaching really is. It's not just a proclamation of Jesus as Messiah. That is the foundation. But Father, it's a true linking of Jesus to the personhood of Yahweh of the Old Testament and the fulfillment of prophecy that we see in the New. And so, Lord, for us not to miss this worship moment, we need your wisdom gifted to us. Father, here's the great news, and I thank you in advance. You tell us that we can have it. So, Lord, we ask for something we know we're already going to get. So, so, Father, what a great prayer this is. I know the outcome is yes. And so we collectively pray that you would gift us with your wisdom to understand the content of your text, but, Father, even deeper so, to understand the application of your text that we, too, like Saul, later changed to Paul, like Paul, we can become more like our Savior just by being here today. Just from this study, we will be more like Jesus. That's our prayer. We voice that collectively in the name of Christ, and all of God's people agreed by saying, amen. So if you would, start studying with me right there at the, the beginning of verse 19. I know we, we went there last week, but I want to pick up right there in verse 19. After taking some food, he regained his strength. Okay, so scales fall off. Remember, it's the word, let peace where we get leprosy, so it's this flaky skin, so the scales fall off. Ananias has done his job, come out of his comfort zone. Now he's taken food, he has been strengthened, he's received the Holy Spirit, he's been baptized. And notice, here's the thing, new believer, if you are a new Christ follower, here is your first strategy. Do not miss this. And if you're a long-term Christ follower, the strategy does not change for you. Notice the very first thing. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. With doesn't mean with. It means join, come together, agree with. If you want to journey the way God intends for you to journey, you will not do your Christian journey by yourself. You are to plug into a local body of believers. So for somebody to tell you, hey, me and Jesus are okay, but they never attend a corporate worship setting. They're not plugged into a body of local believers. They are incorrect in their understanding of what the Bible teaches. 
The Bible teaches Paul's first step, his first strategy was to join up with disciples. There is strength in numbers. Guys, listen, I meet with the, the three best guys in the world every Monday morning. Every Monday morning at 6 a.m. And, and I had them texting me this week. And they were asking me, and this is kind of funny, they were asking me how the 14 and a half hours, I had 14 and a half hours of meetings in two days. One of those meetings went for seven hours and we never left the room. And I had them texting me because I had shared my heart with them. I'm like, I'm going to do some stuff this week and my attitude's just not good. I was very honest and open and transparent with them. That's what we do. And I've got them texting me going, how did your meetings go? That's not what they were asking me at all. You got to know my dudes. They're not like that. Here's what they were asking. Did you act like a child or not? That's what they were asking me. Did you, did you do what you were supposed to? Did you correct your attitude? Did you submit to the Lord? So they were asking about the meetings, but they knew the meetings weren't great. They were asking, was I great in the meetings? Spiritually, that's what they were asking. Well, this is exactly what Paul did. He surrounded himself. He surrounded himself. Now, do you have to get outside that circle to go about regular life? Yes, you do. But there should be regular moments where you come back together with other disciples so you are strengthened in your journey. We are here to help one another. And so please hear me. You need to be plugged into a local body. You need to be vibrant and active in that local body for you to be growing the way you're supposed to. Verse 20, immediately, all right, so he's growing in his accountability and his strength with those disciples. And so immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. The word proclaiming is cariso in Greek. It is the word for preaching. And so if you want to know what preaching is, preaching must have as its foundation that Jesus is the very Son of God. But please hear me. It doesn't stop there. That's great for camps. That is great for an evangelistic rally. That is not great for church. Paul himself, the later Paul himself said this, you've got to get off the milk of the gospel, get on the meat of doctrine. So every Sunday, what are we going to do? We're going to do what Paul actually did. He preached the foundation of Jesus is the Son of God, but then later on, we're going to see about three paragraphs later how he actually did that, which will be what we do every Sunday that we gather in this place. We're going to do exactly what the Bible says when it comes to teaching of the Word. So preaching is not simply declaring Jesus is Lord. Yes, that is very evangelistic, but if you really want to preach, you really want to do what the Bible says preaching is, you've got to go deeper than that. You've got to go beyond Jesus is Lord. And so he goes and he starts to do this. Notice where he did it. He did it in the synagogues, in case y'all don't remember. You know, there were rules about worship. Keep, keep in mind, the Jews could only travel so far. So, so you got one temple, that temple's in Jerusalem. If you were to walk over two-thirds of a mile to get to the temple, that was considered work, and so you would be sinning trying to come to worship. That's how rigid this was. And so what did they do? They established synagogues in all these places where Jews were so they didn't have to walk over two-thirds of a mile to come and worship. And so you would have people who worshiped in Jerusalem at the temple, but then you would have many, 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 many other Jews that would worship in the synagogues on the Sabbath. So that's, that's Friday evening at 6 p.m. to Friday or Saturday evening at 6 p.m. And you would have them also meet there during the week to study. And so what, is, what does Saul do? He goes to a place where he should have had some authority. Keep, keep in mind, if you think you have just discovered the best thing that you could ever find out, and see, y'all, we do this all the time. Dude, Lowe's has got a 50% off sale. And we start texting everybody. Hey, man, dude, I was over at Walmart, and they are, they've got on the clearance aisle, they've got like 55-inch TVs for 250 bucks. What? <sighs> Here we go. They won't let you do that on Walmart pickup. So, so just go ahead and go get it. And, and so here's the deal. If we think it's really good news, what do we do? We let people know. Saul is not trying to fight. He's not looking for a fight, but he goes to the place where he is from. He is a Jew, and so he goes to tell the Jews, listen, y'all have missed this. Jesus is who Jesus said he was. I saw him. Remember, they haven't seen him. 
Saul has seen him. And so what does he try to do? He tries to go convince people he cares about. Y'all, this is not a fight. This is not an attack. He really loves these people. He is, he is passionate about the fact they need to come to Jesus. And so he comes to try to tell them the best news. But look at their response. So remember, the more we try to fit into Christ's likeness, what does the culture do? They reject that. They think we're the oddball. They think we're weird. Look at verse 21. All who heard him were astounded. Uh, astounded is exist to me in Greek, and it doesn't mean astounded. You know, astounded is kind of like, oh, that's not this word. They were astounded, but it's the word that implies anger or hatred. So, so they were astounded. They were shocked. They were really shocked to the point that they hated him. They, they weren't just like, wow, man, that really is good news. It is, no, who is this idiot among us? Who is this guy? Here's the problem. They knew who he was. They knew who Saul actually was, and so this makes it more difficult. Isn't this the man in Jerusalem who was causing havoc? Uh, the word havoc is actually kind of weak. It's portheo in Greek. It means destruction or death. Remember, Saul was responsible for people being dragged out of their homes, thrown into prison, their homes taken by the chief priest. He was also responsible for people being stoned to death for blasphemy. So he was a murderer. They know who he is. But this is a teaching point. Don't miss this. The more you try to become like Jesus, guess what happens with your past? It will come visit you. You know why it comes to visit you? It is not because God has not released it because he has. 1 John 1, 9, if you are faithful to confess your sins, I am faithful to forgive and remove all your unrighteousness. So when you confess your sin to God and you turn away from that sin, what does God do to it? He throws it away. He does not bring it back up to guilt you. So who then is bringing up your sin? Satan. Because what does Satan want you to do? He wants you looking backwards so as you're moving forward, you hit something face first. He doesn't want you focused on where you're going. He wants you focused on where you're coming from. Because if I'm not focused on where I'm going, I'm not staying on track. I'm looking backwards, and I never make any progress going this way. And so notice what happened to Saul. He starts to tell people what he thinks is the greatest news of all time. Jesus is, in fact, the very Son of God. Aren't you the guy that killed people? Aren't you the guy that imprisoned old Joe, those Christian people? Now, they don't care. Remember, the Jews don't care for the Christians, so they don't care that Saul's done this. But they're like, how could you be talking about Jesus as God when you're the guy that's trying to kill everybody who believes it? So his past attacks him, causing havoc for those who called on this name. And he came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priest. But look at verse 22. So, so Saul, when faced by his path, here's what Saul does. Oh, right, he just drops his head and he crawls back to him into a hole of depression. No, that's not what Saul did. Notice what he did. And, and this is another teaching point. Don't miss this. When your past tries to attack you, notice what Saul did. He grew stronger. It's not this. See, it, it's not this. It's not stronger. It's stronger. Indimaoo. That's the word. I, I know we don't say that much in English. It's Greek. It's indimaoo. Indimaoo means to become more capable of. So it's not stronger here. It's stronger here. Please hear me. Saul, Paul, is the most biblically educated guy that ever wrote in Scripture. And you're like, whoo, boy, that's a bold statement. Y'all remember who Paul is, right? He is a Pharisee at the very least. We believe he's a member of the Sanhedrin. If there is any soul that existed that wrote in the New Testament or Old Testament, who knew the Old Testament better than Paul? Shake your head this way. Do you believe it was coincidental that God picked a guy that wrote two-thirds of what was going to become the New Testament Bible? It's not coincidental. He handpicked the guy who knew it. 
He handpicked him. Why? Because his knowledge base was so vast. And notice this. The guy who is probably the greatest biblical expert of the Old Testament who wrote in the New Testament is getting stronger every day right here. He's still digging. He's still studying. And so when he gives advice to his protege, Timothy, later, my favorite two books in all the Bible, First and Second Timothy, because it's Paul, a preacher, writing to a young preacher, and he gives him this advice. Study and show yourself approved. Keep studying. Don't you dare stop studying, son. I know you're the preacher. You're the senior pastor of that church. You ain't done. Keep studying. And so notice this. He, he, he keeps digging deeper and deeper. And notice the outcome of this. See, this is how God uses uses our efforts. He kept confounding the Jews. The word confounding is a word in Greek that actually means, it means defeating. It's not just confusing them, he's defeating them. And let me tell you how he was defeating them because this leads us back to an understanding of how preaching should take place. He confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is Messiah. Now, y'all think through this with me for a minute. Those of you who like law enforcement TV shows, right? You know how we prove stuff? You know, ten and a half years of investigations. You know how we prove stuff? We have evidence. But see, if I go into a room and I simply say, it's my opinion that Jesus is Lord, you know how much evidence that is actually going to provide in a case? Nothing. Because they're like, I don't care what your opinion is. Show me some evidence. Now, notice what this says in the Bible. This is God's inspired word. It says, by proving Jesus is the Messiah. So, so he doesn't have forensic evidence. He has no DNA proof. We don't have God's DNA Here's what's kind of funny. You actually do have it. It's inside you, but you can't fingerprint it. Really kind of neat. We don't have any video evidence. We don't have photographs. He doesn't even have video. He doesn't even have a selfie of him, he and Jesus on Damascus Road. Now, how cool would that have been if Paul had a selfie of he and Jesus? And you, you do know that you couldn't have seen it. It was so bright. It was blinding. It'd just been a bright light. Okay, never mind. Okay, so here's the deal. We got no evidence. But what does he do? He proves to them Jesus is Messiah. Why? Because when it says prove, that's not the word prove. It's symbabazo. I know, again, we don't use that much. Symbabazo. Symbabazo in Greek means to unite and thus show a result. So what is he doing? He doesn't simply state Jesus is the Son of God. So Paul didn't bust up into the synagogue with all these well-studied Jews and go, Jesus is the Son of God. Because they would have stoned him right there. There would have been no product there, no progress. And so what did he do? He unites. So what does he unite? He unites the person of Jesus with the person of Yahweh in the Old Testament. And so what did Saul always teach? He taught that Jesus was the fulfillment. What did Jesus say about himself? I didn't come to do away with the Old Testament. I came to do what? Fulfill the Old Testament. So every prophecy mentioned about Messiah, Jesus fulfilled. So what does Saul spend his time doing? Studying even more deeply all these Old Testament prophecies so then he can teach and prove that Jesus is, in effect, the full fulfillment of those. He is complete fulfillment of those. And so this is how he proves. He proves by reasoning. In case you don't know, that still takes place in trial courts today. We prove by reasoning facts a logical outcome. So, so Paul has actually proven that Jesus is the Messiah. And so in preaching, please hear me, in preaching, my job is not to like inspire you. My job is not like to even motivate you. My job is to link for you the person of Jesus and Yahweh from the Old Testament to the Jesus that we sing about as resurrected in the new. That's my job. So that's why we study. We, we don't just get up and spit, stomp, snort, shout. We, we, we study, we dig into the Word, and so here, here we're trying to unite these people. After many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him. Y'all, this is what I love about the Jews. I, I, man, you, you talk about God's chosen people, the Old Testament covenant. 
they are as fleshly as they come. When things did not go their way, what was their solution every time? Kill it. Kill it. That's the way it was in Mississippi. We didn't know what it was. We just shot it and ate it. That's just kind of how things worked. And, and so you kill it. I mean, and they do it every time. Like, it's not just once. It's every time. And, and so here's Saul trying to tell them the best news he's ever heard, and they want to kill him. But Saul learned of their plot, so they were watching the gates day and night, intending to kill him. But his disciples took him by night, lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. In Damascus, uh, Damascus was constructed like most of the ancient cities. There was an outer wall. Jerusalem was the same way. There was an outer wall. But unlike what you would think, see, like when you look at the Great Wall of China, y'all do know that's just a wall, right? Like there's no houses there. These walls in the ancient Palestinian area, when they built those walls, houses were constructed in the walls. Now, could you imagine how fun that would have been? So every time an enemy came to attack, they were attacking your house if you had an outer wall house. And so this is one of those outer wall homes. Obviously, this is a person who was sympathetic to the Christian cause. And so they allowed them access to this window, and at night they lowered him down out of a basket because what we know is this. They were watching the gates because how do people normally come and go in these old ancient cities? They walk through the gates, out the gates. That's what they did. No, they lower him down through a basket. And so these disciples are looking out for their friend, and so they send him back to Jerusalem. This is where he should be accepted, right? He's a Jew from Jerusalem. He, he should be accepted there. Nah. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. Hey, the word join is not join. Um, Leah Madeline, let me borrow you for a minute. I used to embarrass Caleb all the time. Now I'll do Leah. She's the youngest. All right, so join is not join. Like, join is, hey, can I be in your club? And Aaliyah, of course, loves her daddy. She'd say, yes. That's not this. It is this. Boy, you smell good. So go ahead and sit down. All right, so, so it's join. Like, like he, he was clinging to them. Paul knows he's in trouble. Everywhere I go to tell people about Jesus, somebody wants to kill me. The only people sympathetic are the people who think like I do. Here's the only problem. The last time Paul was in Jerusalem, what was he doing to Christians? Dragging them out of their houses, throwing them in prison, killing them. So when Paul goes back, them not knowing anything about his story, they know nothing about a selfie on the road to Damascus. They know nothing. He comes back. What do you think their response is going to be? You, you, think they, you think that they receive him and welcome him? We know the Jews aren't going to, but what about the Christians? But they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a, a disciple. Here is a teaching point, however. When Paul went to become part of the local church, who was it that did the seeking for fellowship? It was Paul. P please don't misunderstand this. We're going to talk about our Barnabas role in just a minute. But you do understand it is not the purpose of the institutional church to try to make everybody feel apart. It is their responsibility to want to be apart first. Saul sought this first. He didn't show up expecting them to roll out the red carpet. He sought to cling to them. Now they're given a chance to respond. Now we're going to talk about our Barnabas responsibility in just a minute because some people will show up and they're not going to take that, that initiative to join, to be a part, and so we have a responsibility like verse 27. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Uh, took him doesn't mean took him. Took him is the word in Greek that means to grasp as so not to drop. To grasp as so not to drop. I've heard this comment in 20 years of church world vocationally. As a senior pastor, four places I've heard this same comment. Oh, man, they come, but they just don't stay. They just slip through the cracks. You know why? Because nobody grasped them. 
Nobody grasped them. You do understand, one senior pastor, 550 people in average attendance, I can't grasp you all. Impossible. Impossible. Cannot. We cannot hire enough staff to grasp you all. So whose responsibility does it become? It's the Barnabas' responsibility. You need to become a Barnabas. I I am so proud of our deacons. I've got to take just a quick moment. In our last deacons meeting, our deacons don't sit around discussing all the financial stuff of our church, in case you're curious. That's not their role. They're servant leaders, not administrative leaders. You know what they sit around discussing? How they need more of them out in the foyer every Sunday to greet and meet all the new people who are coming to our church. That is how deacons meetings should go. I am so proud of our guys. I'm just telling you, I am so proud of them. As they were looking at being a Barnabas, they weren't using that terminology. I didn't even bring it up because they had figured it out on their own. They didn't need my teaching. They already had it figured out. They understand that what we need to be doing or looking for those people like Saul who are really wanting to cling and become a part of, but maybe they're a little too shy. Maybe it's a brand new church for them. Maybe it's a brand new experience. They're not bold enough. We need to be looking for them and incorporating them, grasping them as though not to drop them. You really want to see church membership thrive? Start grasping. (laughs) In the correct way, by the way. But start grasping. Yeah, start grasping. Like, like help people feel a part of. Notice, he didn't say, hey, you know what, Saul? I know a few guys. I'm going to put in a text real quick. Let them know that you're coming. What did he do? The Bible says he took him. He stuck his neck in the noose. What if this guy's a fake? What if Saul's a spy? What if he's still killing Christians and he's come up with a great plan? I'm going to act like I'm one of them. And when they let me on the inside, I'll find out who the leaders are. Those are the dudes I'm going to kill. Dude, I mean, really, I can't believe Satan didn't come up with that. Barnabas said, no, my job is to take a risk and I'm going to put my neck on the line for you. Saul was the real deal and and y'all know the rest of the story as he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews. I love this, but they tried to kill him. Y'all do see this is the Jewish solution each time in the New Testament. Every time you debate, kill him. There was no arguing within that faith. It was kill him. When the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. I gave you a picture of a boat in case you were wondering why there's a boat pictured there. Uh, The only way to get from Caesarea to Tarsus is by boat. So they've lowered him down in a basket. They have thrown him on a boat. I do know his boat, not this one, but his boat crashes multiple times. Paul was the most ocean-wrecked guy that we have in all the New Testament. Why? Because he was steadily trying to fit in. He was steadily trying to fit in. But but here's the problem, y'all. Just like Saul... You and I are a shape of sin that God is trying to shape into something else. Let me explain it this way. When my kids were growing up, and Amanda, you'll remember this, we had this toy. I had to look for it online. We actually had that very toy. I remember playing with this. And as a parent, it is so cool when you help your kids star, and you put it in the star, star, and you put it, and they, and they finally, after a period of time, they finally get it. What's even funnier, though, is like, before they get it, them trying to make it go into a slot where it doesn't fit, and then, you know, at an 18-year-old maturity level, it's, <laughs> you know, and Amanda walking by going, look, they're just like their dad as she walks on by. You know, yeah, you know, there we go. Here's the thing, though. Did you know you and I are this square that is having to be forced 
into a round shape, and you go, well, now wait a minute, why did you pick square and round? Y'all do know that the circle, ask, ask any couple I've ever married when I hold up their ring. Why are the rings round? You're like, well, that's the only shape that fits the finger. No, it could have been square. You could have put that on there too. Why is it round? Because it's the symbol of eternity. So when I married a couple, and every time I see them afterwards, and I've got a couple over here, and I go, are y'all still married? You can ask them. I ask them that every time. Are y'all still married? Yep. Why? Because they're married forever. It's the symbol of eternity. So what is God doing? God is taking a shape like a square And he is trying to make that shape fit the symbol of eternity, which is his son. So he's trying to take my flawed image and he's trying to force it into a shape it's not really in the shape of. And so what has to happen? So for me to fit in there, he has to bang me on my head 90% of the time. But the other time, he kind of, he takes a more simplistic approach. He just kind of whittles away. And so what you see in these shavings, these are the parts of you God is removing. So, So over here, there's a little bit of selfishness that's come off. There's a little bit of a gossiping tongue that's come off. There's a little bit of discontent that's come off. There's a little bit of unrighteous anger that fell right there. There's a little bit of lust that fell right here. There's a little bit of greed right over here. There's a little bit of hatred and racism. I grew up in Mississippi. There's a whole lot of hatred and racism falling off right here. And and we can start to name all of that, right? Coveting, wanting something that's not rightfully ours, but we want it for ourselves. They're they're all being shaved off. See, here's the part. Y'all, we're still flesh and blood, and when he shaves it off, it doesn't feel good. Why? Because we're flawed by nature. It was while we were in our sin that Christ died for us, and God has taken us from our sin, and now he's shaving off the parts that don't feel his character and it's a painful process it's not fun because then we're willfully supposed to not want to pick this back up see that's the part i think we sometimes forget as christians as he shaves it off we're not supposed to want it anymore and yet for some of us that's a very difficult thought because for some of us there are certain aspects of sin we don't hate so much There's certain aspects of our sinful character we kind of relate to pretty well. And we don't want to let go. And so here's what I want you to understand. From Paul having difficulty fitting into his culture, what we see is this same relationship of us trying to fit into this image of Christ. We're going to have that same difficulty. And then here's what we're going to find out. The more that I endure that and I actually become like Jesus, the less like my culture I will be. And the more flawed I will think my culture is. And then the more odd our culture is going to think we are as Christ followers. And so our challenge is this, is just to hang in there while we're being shaped and endure this transition that we're being forced in some ways to go through. Because remember, our flesh may not be voluntarily going through this. Our spirit is. What did Jesus say? Oh, man, buddy, your spirit is strong, but your flesh is weak. And so, what does it look like? What can I do to enhance my transition? Number one, by being with other disciples. You by yourself are a target for the enemy. And here's what Peter says about this enemy. His name is Satan. He says, he is like a roaring lion just waiting to devour you. He is not your friend. 
He does not want to be your friend. He wants to destroy you. Every place Saul went, what did they want to do? Kill him. What does Satan want to do? Kill you. You know the only reason you're not dead? It's because Jesus said, the one my Father has given to me cannot be snatched from me. The only reason you are not dead from a real enemy called Satan is because God has refused to allow it to happen. That is the only reason. You do understand he's a power you can do nothing with. That's why, that's why Peter himself, here's Peter. Y'all listen, walk with Jesus, saw him transformed into his glory. And here's Peter, led the early church saying, you don't want to mess with him. Stay away. Unless it's God who leads you into that battle, because then God's going to win. But he says, you individually, don't you go up against something you can't handle? So, so how do we remain strong? That's why he devised the body plan of church. You're part of a larger body. You, you surround yourself with other disciples. You want to stay in your faith. You want to remain strong in your faith. You've got to have it to where you've got these interactions with other believers, and those believers love you enough that they will hold you accountable. They will shoot you a text saying, hey, how are your meetings going? When in fact what they're saying is, are you behaving? Because I have to go back and talk to them tomorrow, and no kidding, Part of what we're supposed to do, I'm supposed to give an account on the things that I told them the week before that I may have struggles with. I'm supposed to give them an update. And, and so that's how we grow stronger in this transition. Number two, by clinging to the identity of Jesus. Please hear me. Jesus is not simply a man. There are people who today, they espouse the idea of Jesus. They don't deny his existence and they talk about what a great man Jesus was. There are people who espouse that he is a great prophet. You do know the Muslim faith recognizes the identity of Jesus. They don't deny Jesus at all. They recognize the identity of Jesus. What they deny is the deity of Jesus. They say, oh, Jesus is one of the greatest teachers of all times. I agree. I couldn't agree more. But he's not just a teacher. Because it's only Christianity, if you don't remember, it's only Christianity that recognizes the deity of Jesus. That says here was a human who was truly a human, who was a great rabbi, but at the same time he was fully God, the creator God of everything that exists. In fact, here's what the Bible says, that it is through Jesus God made everything, and it is through Jesus he sustains everything. So it's not acceptable that you acknowledge Jesus only as a man. It is not acceptable that you acknowledge Jesus only as a great teacher. It is only acceptable that you acknowledge him as God. And if you don't, then you're not truly a Christ follower. And so Christ followers, listen, as offensive as our culture finds the very name of Jesus, that should drive us that much more to cling to the identity of Jesus. Everywhere Paul went, he taught it. Everywhere he went, they tried to kill him. It just made him cling that much harder because that was the only foundation that he had. Number three, by becoming more capable of explaining Scripture. Now, every person in a church needs to go to seminary. Now, it would benefit everybody, please hear me. But not everybody needs to invest seven years, thousands of dollars. Not everybody needs to do that. However, every individual believer is accountable to God for how you study his word. Every one. Every one. You should be able to defend your faith. It's great for you to email me, and you do. It's great for you to email me and say, hey, what does this actually mean? Or, hey, man, here's a situation I'm facing. Can, can you get me some resource? And, and, man, I love it when you need me like that. I do. I, I love it when you need me to help you with resources and those things. But see, the, the basic average stuff, you, you need to be a person who knows what we call the 20 basic doctrines of the faith. There, there's no kidding. Google it. Wayne Grudem authored it. It's called The 20 Basic Doctrines of the Christian Faith. 
You should know the 20 basic doctrines. You should know what they are because you should know what we believe. And this is why you got a pastor telling a young up-and-coming pastor, study and show yourself approved. Meaning this, you don't study simply for your own growth. We do that, but you study so you can share your growth with other people. See, if I went and hung out in my study all week long and I prepared this and I got ready for this but didn't come out here and do this on Sunday, that's wasted. I am to study and thus show myself approved not only to God but to the audience that he has placed in front of me. And it's not so I can get your praise, but it's so I can show that God has done something, is teaching something. Number four, by remaining on the lookout for the plans of the enemy. The Bible says that Saul became aware of what the enemy was planning. Here's the deal. If you think Satan doesn't know you, you're sadly mistaken. He has a horde, a legion. Legion means many. He has a legion that follows him. Satan himself may not know you personally. But I guarantee you somebody in his, his little group knows you personally. Y'all, I will tell you this, and, and I will not offer any explanation because it doesn't need to be in this setting. I am absolutely convinced Satan knows my name. Abs- he, he has demonstrated that to me. Absolutely convinced. And I'll just be honest with you, it's not a comfortable feeling to think that the ultimate head or source of evil knows you personally. You know, the only thing that keeps me in the fight is because I know he knows me personally. That is the only thing. Because that other dude's a powerful dude, is what the Scripture says. But here's the deal. We should make it our goal that the enemy knows us. Don't you love that passage where this demon is, is looking at this guy, and this guy's trying to cast a demon out? He said, hey, Paul, I know. You, I don't know. And commences to thrash him good. Yeah, they need to know who you are because you're a threat. Number five, by going all out to help other disciples in their struggles. Here's your Barnabas moment. Here's your Barnabas moment. Let, let me challenge you with this question. How, many, how long has it been? How long has it been since you've come into this room and you've intentionally looked for somebody that you don't know and gone and started conversation with them? How long has it been since you've come into this room and you've looked for somebody you do not know? Hey, hey let me ask this. Let's just do this one time, one time. I don't do this very often. How many of you look around this room How many of you in this room know every soul seated in here? My hand's not up either. Shame, 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 shame on us. Because there's some Christians in this room struggling and there needs to be a Barnabas with them. Right? Grasp as not to drop. Grasp as not to drop. Barnabas moments. Number six, by making every effort to connect with other disciples. You're like, hey, you kind of mentioned that. You know why I mentioned that? How did the text start? As soon as he ate and regained strength, he was doing what? He was with the disciples. When he went to Jerusalem, what was the first thing he did? He tried to reunite with disciples. Here's what you need in your life. You need other believers to love you, to pray for you, to encourage you, and to hold you accountable. Every one of us need that. Every one of us need that. That's how this text began, and that's how this text ended. So let me ask you a couple questions. This is it, and we're out of here. Number one, there may be somebody here going, Justin, listen, I don't want to argue with you. I don't want to debate with you. Nothing you've said I have a real issue with. Here's the problem. I just don't get it. I'm not getting this idea of having other disciples. 
I don't get this fellowship thing you're talking about. I don't get this accountability thing. I don't get this idea of being a Barnabas. I don't even know who Barnabas is. But for some reason, and I can't explain it, Justin, I want to know more what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. I, I, how do you do that? How do you become one? Do I sign up for it? Do I take a class? Is it a book I read? Can, can you help me? I'm having this feeling that I need to seek this out. Y'all do know we're in what we call the information age. One thing I love about the generation coming up behind us, every study says this, they are learners. They are learners. Why? Because they've grown up with information at their fingertips and they can get all of it whenever they want. They are learners. And so if you're here this morning and you're like, you know what, I'm not opposed to Jesus in any way. I just don't understand everything you're saying. But for some reason today, unlike any other moment, I want to know more. Can you help me? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. What I can't do is do it in front of 500 people in here in 15 seconds. So here's what I'm going to offer you. If you are seeking that, you, you for some reason today want more information about being a Jesus follower. A disciple of Jesus, I've got some folks that help me out every week. They're going to be standing right over here by these double doors. So we're going to all stand in just a minute and pray. I don't want you to feel uncomfortable. I'm not wanting you to do anything that you don't want to do. But if you want information about becoming a Jesus follower, if you'll walk right over there, there's going to be some folks that welcome you. They're going to take you out of this room. Don't panic. They're going to take you out of this room away from this big crowd. You're going to go right back here to our fellowship hall to a room that's more private. And because we're in information age, they're going to sit down with you with information. They're not going to ask you to make any decision. They're going to ask you to commit to anything. You won't be asked to sign anything, give anything. They're just going to sit down with you with some information, and it is going to explain from the Scriptures what it means to follow Jesus. If that is you today, when I start to pray, don't wait for any other invitation. Just walk right over there, and somebody will meet you. However, most of you in this room have done that step before. You, you have gotten information, and you have chosen to be a follower of Jesus. So let me ask you this then. As we go into this response time, how has your shaping process gone this week? How willing have you been for God to take your shape and conform it into the image of His Son? And the only way you can be conformed is if you're following what Jesus left for us in this book that we call the Bible. Has there been any of the shavings that you've tried to pick back up? And remember, he's carving them off on purpose because they're not like Jesus. Have there been any of those shavings that in your flesh, though, you have desired to bring back? Bitter spirit, critical speech, unwholesome language, eyes that have viewed things and minds that have contemplated things they shouldn't be focused upon, desires that you know are not accord with Scripture, Paths that you know that aren't on the path of godliness or righteousness. How have you been in your transition period? Remember 1 John 1, 9. If you are faithful to confess, I will be faithful every time, every time to remove it. So maybe it's just a time of prayer. Maybe it's a recommittal. Maybe, maybe you're going, you know what? I, I don't know of like active sin this week in my life, but I have not been focused on Jesus at all. Man, school has restarted, and man, I, I, just, I am so focused on that world, and I've got a new job, and I'm so focused on that, and I've got this new relationship in my life, and it's so exciting. It's, it's, a, it's a Harlequin romance moment, and, and I'm so focused on that. But I really, Justin, I really, if I'm being honest, I haven't really focused on myself being changed this week. Here's what God said about that. You will have no other gods before me, meaning your school, your job, your bow or your girl, none of that, none of that gets the first seat when we got. 
And so, so where's that in your journey, your transition? So maybe that's how we pray. So stand with me and use the